Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. By studying asteroids and meteorites, we can learn a lot about the early formation of our solar system. Now, objects like the moon are pretty mysterious because whilst they're small, they also have very strange surfaces that can hide all kinds of mysteries, like massive collisions at the early parts of our solar system. Plus, we find out about how some of the other odd objects in our solar system, like Ceres, the dwarf planet, managed to be formed with such strange features. One of the overriding images of science fiction is of an asteroid belt an incredibly packed space where you can hide or fly or careen your spaceship through, avoiding pursuers and of course collisions with these large rocks. But actual asteroid belts are not as packed as that. Now, they are incredibly dense compared to most of interstellar space or space in our solar system, but they're nowhere near as packed as science fiction would have you believe. And one of the things that is lurking in our asteroid belt between Jupiter and Mars aside from the hundreds and thousands of asteroids scattered through there, are some pretty big ones, big enough that we categorise them as dwarf planets. Now, we have a particularly noticeable one there, known as Ceres, and it's a pretty amazing object. Of course, it's smaller than our moon, with a diameter of around 900 kilometres, but it is pretty big compared to most other objects inside the asteroid belt. And it took a long time to try and find and detect it, with researchers all the way back in the 1700s doing calculations with things like the Titius Bode law, trying to actually figure out what was keeping the asteroid belt in check. And researchers like astronomers Giuseppe Piazzi trying to find it all the way back in the 1700s and 1800s. Now, of course, we classify it now as a dwarf planet, but it's an amazing thing to study because it has a pretty interesting orbit in the middle of the asteroid belt. And it is not quite flat in the same plane as Mars and Jupiter. It's it's a bit inclined. Now, the surface, though, of Ceres is pretty amazing. It is technically what you would consider an asteroid, with it a C-type, a carbonaceous asteroid. And it's got a lot of volatile compounds in it, a bit of an icy but low-dense composition. Now, this is all pretty fascinating type of asteroids and meteorites, C-type, carbonaceous type. But more importantly is what's happening on its surface. And for the longest of time, the surface of Ceres was a bit mysterious because we could see that it existed, we could observe it, but it was always that blurry blur. It's so small, so its reflectivity is quite low. So actually getting nice, I'd say, images of its surface, very, very difficult. Which is where NASA's Dawn mission, a mission launched in 2010-11, which traveled out to the asteroid belt and observed a lot of different objects in there including Vesta and Ceres, and it's spending most of its time now actually orbiting around Ceres. And that Dawn mission results way back in 2015 give us some pretty unusual but beautifully clear photos of the surface of Ceres. And what was really striking in it is its both composition and structure, because it was filled with really unexpected geological activity. We also found water vapour in a really thin semi-permanent atmosphere at Exosphere which is also fascinating in itself, but not what researchers like Scott King, a geoscientist of Virginia Tech College of Science, were diving into. Now, pouring over all the data from the Dawn mission, King, Bland, Marchi, Raymond, Russell, Scully, and Sizemore published in the journal Astronomical Geophysical Union Advances, 
around how they could understand what actually happened on the surface of Ceres. Because the surface of Ceres shows many, many mysterious features that can't easily be explained, especially when you compare it to studying of big planets. And when the researchers were looking at these images of Ceres, they noticed that, well, it was so small for starters that it was generally considered to be geologically inactive. But if you look at a large one side of the series, you can see there's this huge plateau which covers a massive fraction of that dwarf planet. Now, what it looks like is, could be described as being similar in form to what you would see with a continent. Now, surrounding the edges of this so-called plateau or continent were fractures in rocks clustered in one location. And even visible traces of signs of evaporated water vapor, what you would see imagining some kind of ocean world. Deposits all over the surface where minerals had condensed as the water evaporated. We see this on many objects where there's a freezing ocean. Basically, what's left behind is these marks of, of the water and the, through the concentration and buildup of minerals. Now, when you think about these large objects in our solar system, all the moons of Jupiter and Saturn, for example, we can see different kinds of behavior. But compared to that, Ceres is relatively small and inactive. So how could it build all this geological activity? How could it have all these weird and strange surface features? So the results in 2015 gave scientists a good idea of what Ceres had, but not how it got them, got all these remarkable features on its surface. So that's what researchers like King have been trying to dive into, and as a professor of the Department of Geosciences, is the right person for the job. So through modelling and working with a team from different institutes, including the United States Geological Survey and Planetary Science Institute, they were looking for what telltale signs they could find in the surface and build models accordingly. And what they saw was the decay of radioactive elements within Ceres' interior could theoretically keep it active. Now, okay, if you look at a big planet like Earth, Mars, or Venus, he normally shows, and most models of researchers have seen, is that they go through a phase where they start out hot. You have all these collisions and aggregation through the amalgamation phase of a new planet. That This creates a whole bunch of initial heat that you see in most planet formation. And then, after some time, this cools away again. Now, of course, on Earth, you don't think of as our core as cold but compared to the early beginnings of earth it is comparatively now it has enough heat to sustain itself and that's pretty good for us but it's not really necessarily as hot as it once was at formation now how Ceres by contrast got to be big enough but not big so large that it built up a massive surface through huge collisions so it didn't really have that kickstart that maybe earth had by comparison so they didn't really get that massive injection of heat in the same way. It actually would have started off cold and then maybe got hot and then cooled off again. So how could it generate enough heat to power all this geological activity that they can see? And you can build a model or theoretical idea, but then you have to try and match it to the data that's actually returned from the Dawn mission. So what they found, the most model that best fit the data, was something where Ceres started out cold and heated up because of the decay of radioactive elements inside of its core. Elements such as uranium and thorium. Now, that alone has enough power, in a relatively small planet size like the dwarf planet Ceres, to make the interior of it relatively unstable. Now, that means that it started off cold, but then started to heat up due to this instability-based 
buildup from the radioactive elements inside its core. Now, the problem is it wouldn't be consistent. So, for example, one part of it, as they saw in their models, would heat up and, the, and start to move around and upward, and the other part would move downward. And that could explain some of the strange surface features that the Dawn mission saw, like the large plateau on one side and absolutely nothing on the other, or perhaps the fractures around the rocks clustering around a single location. Concentration of features like this would make sense if there was some kind of radioactive buildup bubbling, for want of a better word, in a certain region of the dwarf planet. So if you model this and say there's some kind of force pushing and rising up, then you do get this kind of plateau or bubbling or large spreading at one part of the surface. And this means that what Ceres would have gone through would have been a pattern of cold at the beginning, hot because of radioactive decay, and then cold again. And this is almost like diagenic heating is what they refer to it as. And this could create all kinds of interesting geology scattered across the planets. Now, if you think about what we see on Ceres, it's a bit lonely in the asteroid belt compared to, well, the dynamically stretched and pulled forces of the moons of, say, Jupiter and Saturn. So it gives a good way to study what can happen to these dwarf planets in isolation from where we see a lot of other planets or objects of equivalent size in the outer solar system. And you can learn a lot by studying this kind of lonely case of Ceres about how planets form, and in this case dwarf planets, and, and what can happen beneath the surface to create the striking surface features that we see. Now this paper was published in the journal American Geophysical Union Advances with lead author King, along with a list of other collaborators. Ceres may be a dwarf planet, but it is actually smaller than our moon. And in our solar system, the moon is pretty unique, mostly for being so large and or large compared to the size of the body that it orbits, the Earth. And this has always confused scientists because how the moon was formed and why our moon is so large has a number of explanations, which could include everything from what we've talked about on this podcast before, between capturing a traveling other body in the early stages of our solar system, a colossal impact, the giant impact hypothesis, which was based around the moon being formed by a massive collision between Earth and another proto-celestial body. And these are all potential origins of the moon. And researchers are trying to find evidence to back up these varying theories of the creation. The problem is studying the moon's origin is a bit difficult without a time machine. And really the best that we can do is advanced modeling and some pretty cool geo or cosmic chemistry. And that's what researchers from ETH Zurich have just published in the journal Science Advantage with lead author, PhD researcher, Patricia Ville. And she took samples of lunar meteorites that have been collected at an Antarctica collection sites and then on loan from NASA. Now, the different types of meteorites that are being studied consist of basalt rock. That's formed when magna welled up from the interior of the moon and then cooled quickly. 
they get layered upon layered upon layer of basalt rocks forming on top of them, which keeps them safe, for want of a better word, from cosmic rays and other sources of stellar radiation that the moon's surface is normally bombarded with. So these rocks are nestled away and protected from everything nasty out there, radiation-wise, in our solar system. So the thing is, when this cooling process happens, you can make some pretty amazing lunar glass particles along with other minerals that you see in the magma. And of course, ultimately these things have ended up on Earth. So they've been thrown off by some point by another impact and rained down to Earth as a meteorite. But the actual life of that mineral as it existed on the moon can tell us a lot about what actually was going on at the moon a long time ago. And Patricia Villa and her team discovered that the glass particles were retaining their chemical fingerprints or isotopic signatures of all different kinds of solar gases that were at one point captured and sequestered deep inside the moon's interior. Gases like helium and neon. Now, this is pretty amazing because helium and neon are noble gases. And these are incredibly, you know, fascinating to find on the moon because these are indigenous almost to earth these solar gases on other objects like the moon just couldn't really form on their own they would have had to come from elsewhere so how did the moon end up with these trapped gases deep underneath its surface and they kind of formed on the top of the surface because this rock is actually from pretty deep down and they can tell this by the amount of cosmic ray radiation and other signals that you can look at inside of the meteorites themselves. Now, of course, when we talk about finding helium and neon noble gases uh, in these grains of meteorite samples, we're talking about incredibly, incredibly small amounts. They need really precise spectrometers, one of them named Tom Dooley, which can help detect these really incredibly low concentrations of helium and neon in the samples. But nevertheless, they've been found. And this is only looking at a few samples of lunar meteorites. Now, there's plenty of other lunar samples out there and also around 70,000 in NASA's vast collection of approved meteorites. So now, with this in mind, researchers can start looking through to see if there are any of these gas signatures in other types of meteorites from different layers or from different regions of the moon. And using this geochemistry type analysis, they can perhaps look for other more volatile elements like hydrogen or halogens inside the lunar meteorites. Now, these gases aren't necessary for the formation of life or anything like that, which is often what you know cosmic chemists or geochemists are looking for when they study samples from other planets. But they're really, really useful in understanding what the composition of an object like the moon or maybe a large asteroid or a dwarf planet is made of on its interior and by understanding the composition on its interior especially at different points in time they can tell us an awful lot about how something was made because you can only get to the interior of a planet through well actually being there when it was formed so this research while it's studying meteorites that have landed in antarctica and finding earthbound gases in them what they actually can tell us is how the moon may have been formed in the very first place. Some great research from Patricia Ville, Hernan Busman, Miel Reiber and Colin Martin, published in the journal Science Advances on finding all kinds of noble gases in the moon's interior. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. From strange lopsided surfaces on the dwarf planet series to the formation of the moon through massive collisions studied via geochemistry. We learn a lot by studying the solar system through looking at meteorites and other asteroids. 
Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.